0: I am always delighted to be with each of you, those of you who are present here, whether I can see your face or not. It is a gift to gather with the people of God, and I'm immensely grateful for it. We're going to pray before we begin. God, you who are, and you who were, and you who have yet to show yourself to us, we honor the vastness of your glory and your power we are conscious always, God, of our smallness in the face of who you are and that which you have done and that which you have yet to do. But we are grateful that you do not show us your power as a demonstration of control, but as an offering of love. And that in your power, you invite us to be a part of your communion, that which is a part of who you are, drawn closer and closer to your heart. We honor you, God. And in all the ways that we come, we know that you receive us. In the name of God our Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I do feel like I do this a lot, but I do want to start off the sermon with an apology. Because if you are not currently hungry, my introduction might make you hungry. And if you are hungry, this might make you more hungry. But I wanted to warn you and apologize and say that I do know sort of what I'm doing here. One of the gifts of the internet and our increasingly global world is that we have access to more kinds of food. At least for me, that's one of the best gifts of globalization. It also means that people can get kind of territorial about their food, especially like national or cultural foods that they feel are theirs, right? Nostalgia and personal taste and ingredient, quality, and recipe all mean that an individual's preference for one version of a food over another is always going to be open to debate, right? Which variation is the best? Okay, I'll give you an example. So in West Africa, several nations claim their recipe for jollof rice is the best, right? So it's a staple of their cuisine and Nigeria and Liberia and Ghana and the Gambia all think that their recipe for jollof rice is the best recipe, right? So much so that they have competitions at events like the West Africa Food Festival where they judge whose recipe, regional recipe, is the best. One version is made with like a longer grain rice and another one is made with a slightly different spice blend and a third is made with like jasmine rice, so it's a little more fragrant, but a little less dense. And at the root of this, though, is their love for this essential food, right? A love for this dish. We have something similar here in Kansas. You all probably know this. Many of you have heritage either in this region or directly from the Volga German people who settled this area. And uh, I'm going to tell you something that's controversial, but it is true. There is more than one variety of the beer rock, and there is not a definitive best recipe for it. So sorry, I know that you all believe that that's true, but there's not. And in fact, the difference between a beer rock and a runza is not quite as large of a gap as you all make it out to be. The central features of this food, of course, are that it is a yeast bread pocket that's filled with usually meat and sauerkraut or cabbage and onions and spices. Some more rounded, like ours here in West Kansas, or a little more elongated if you go to Nebraska. Some with thinner amounts of dough on the outside, some that are thicker, greater amounts of filling. But at the base of it, our love for the beer rock is a love for that same food, for the shared heritage of that food. Regardless of the variation you prefer, or you've interacted with the most, or you've eaten the most at your grandmother's house. You may have a favorite version, there may even be a true original recipe somewhere waiting to be found, like national treasure, but there is no definitive best kind, because they all accomplish the same end goal. A portable food, nostalgic connection to our heritage, and a delicious meal. The power of the beer rock is not in the recipe, not in the maker, not in even the quality of the ingredients. It's much bigger than that. And that's what draws us together around this dish. Our conversation today might feel a bit out of place with our discussion, but I think that if you follow me through it, we'll get there. We're going to use three different text references today, which I don't normally do in reading form, but I think that if we're progressing through our question, which for this week of Lent is who is baptized? then I think we want to follow what the text is leading us through rather than just cutting ourselves short. Uh, So we're going to start at the baptism of our Savior, the first significant event of baptism that we find in the text, which is in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to do verse 13 through 17. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. And he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him and a voice from heaven said this is my son the beloved with whom i am well pleased so the first text that we encounter this morning is about christ's baptism by his cousin and resident wild religious man john we see many people are coming to john in this story to receive baptism and the verses before tell us that it is for the forgiveness of sins par for the course, as we've already talked about in this series. John is a desert ascetic, meaning that he deprives himself of earthly comforts, like a bed on a regular basis and soft clothing, in order to commit himself to the work he felt called to do for God. And Jesus and his crew roll up on this baptismal line as John is doing these baptisms in the river, and Jesus comes in line. And it says specifically, Jesus came to the Jordan to be baptized by John. It's very specific that he's not here by coincidence. He's come here with a purpose. And as he gets to the front of the line, John is shocked, maybe a bit confused, gently baffled. And he says to Jesus, what are you doing here, man? Yeah, I, if anything, you should be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. Why are you in this line? I don't think John necessarily understood the weight of who Jesus was in this moment, but he understands that something is up with his cousin, and he says, what's the situation? Why are, we, why are we doing this? Jesus gives him somewhat of a cryptic answer. He says, we have to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. It is proper for us to do so. And that question and an understanding of that is its own sermon, and we're not going to deal with it today but there is something about Jesus's statement that makes John change his mind so whether we understand it or not it's convincing and John relents so as he brings Jesus out of the water a pigeon by the way a, a rock pigeon the same breed as a dove but the one that you find in Judea lands on him it's always very beautifully on his shoulder when you see it in photos but it could very well be his head and We hear a voice from heaven speaking, acknowledging Jesus's status, honoring who Jesus is, expressing love for Christ. So if we're asking the question, who is baptized? The first text we find that has an answer for us is Jesus is baptized. Jesus is the first named character of the scriptures that we see receiving a baptism. And part of this, I would imagine, is intentional by the writers of the New Testament, in part because even if every disciple Jesus had was baptized before him in line, Jesus's baptism is still something new. It's distinct. It's specific. Something is beginning in the moment of Jesus's baptism that was not begun in any of the other moments before. And so having Jesus be the first character receiving this baptism, one who does not need salvation from sin, receiving this baptism, is significant. The presence of the bird and the presence of the words from heaven, this event is distinct. Not everybody that John is baptizing gets such a high, clear marker of recognition. This moment of Jesus' baptism is the first moment of a movement, a signaling of what was to come for Jesus' death and resurrection, and an indicator to anybody who is paying attention that Jesus himself was different. He was not just a teacher of the law. He was not simply an odd desert mystic. He was something different. So our first answer to the question then, Jesus. Jesus is baptized. And with that baptism comes the promise of something new. But the text of the scriptures don't stop there when talking about who is baptized, and so we are not going to either. We don't see in the stories of the New Testament specifically the events of the baptism of Jesus' disciples, though I think it's fair to assume that they were, in fact, baptized. And our next major encounter with baptism is on the day of the founding of the church, on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes in power, in little tongues of fire on the disciples, and a great noisy wind on the gathered disciples in Jerusalem. This is 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, but he has been on earth for a while and has just recently departed. And this event is a huge event in the history of the church, and a big deal for us as well. This is the first time that we read that the Holy Spirit comes on believers in this way. So they made a lot of noise when the wind came into the house, when the Holy Spirit arrives, and the people themselves, as they spill out onto the street, these disciples of Christ, are speaking in tongues uh, of languages that people understand all around them. And it causes a bit of a ruckus, so a crowd gathers. You know, you got nothing else to do. You might as well go find out why everybody's shouting in a different language. And so Peter, never losing an opportunity to preach before a group, gets up before this crowd and begins to tell them the truth of the story of who Jesus was, the significance of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, what God has done in Christ for all of creation. So our next reading starts at the end of his speech. It's a short portion from Acts chapter 2, 37 through 39. And it talks about how his listeners respond to what he has shared. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. So Peter's call, his uh response to the gathered crowd, in part is to teach them the truth of Jesus, to help them acknowledge their role in Jesus' death and to offer them a path forward now that they knew the truth of what had happened. His speech is so compelling that those who are listening are cut to the heart, it says, maybe in our common language, more like gutted. They're just utterly devastated by this news that they have discovered. And they say to Peter and the other leaders that are gathered, what do we do? How do we respond to this terrible news? How can we move forward to remedy our failure. And the reply is pretty straightforward. Repent of your sins and be baptized. This is not new, but now it is done in the name of Jesus. And that acknowledges Jesus's status as divine, as of God. And Peter says if you do this then you will receive also the gift of the holy spirit as well as the forgiveness of sins. And in fact it is a promise that this will not cease this offering is not a one time chance but will be offered to your children and your children's children and to all who are far off it's not something spontaneous that happens in our hearts either because peter tells us everyone who is called by god will receive this gift that means that we know that god is calling all of these believers and is indeed calling us each of us at every moment to be welcomed into this work of Christ. So then the question, who is baptized? Those who are called. Those who believe. Those who desire forgiveness in the work of the Holy Spirit. In short, Christians are baptized. Believers are baptized. Just as our Savior did, so also those who believe in Jesus follow into the water our Christ. It is a baptism, not an informal agreement, but rather a serious commitment, a choice to imitate the life of Christ. Baptism is done first by Jesus, then by the rest of us, all who believe, to continue to match our lives to the life of Christ. One more community for us to talk about as we ask our question again of the text of the scriptures. We're reading from Galatians chapter 3, 27 and 28. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Galatians, like many of the letters in the New Testament, is a bit of a complicated book, but this passage is strikingly clear. Paul, or whomever wrote it, is not leaving room for misunderstanding or misinterpretation here. If you are baptized, then you have been clothed with Christ. Full stop. Because of that new clothing, then, uh, because of your baptism, your other identities are no longer your primary markers of social equality. You are not your religious or cultural identity. You are not your status as enslaved or free. You are not a worker or an employee. You are not a wealthy person or a poor one. You are not uh, any of your challenges in life. You are not your gender. You are none of those things first because your primary garment is that of Christ. Through your baptism, you wear Christ first. This baptism does not allow for pride or prejudice based on your identity in comparison to all the other Christians you hang out with. You don't get to have yourself on a pedestal or someone else down below you. Because of baptism into Christ's unifying power, all of you are now made into one body under Christ. Because of Jesus's death and resurrection, we have died and been reborn as new people, people of God. I do want to be clear that we are not being turned into a colorless blob of humanity wearing a Jesus jacket with the name tag that says one in Christ, right? We are unified by our baptism, brought together to a place of leveling and equality, not made homogenous. This baptism, one in Christ, means that we are meeting in community in our baptism, in equality in our baptism for the work of God. We have one purpose, and that is of Christ Jesus. We are not unified by our doctrinal beliefs, not by the structures of how we organize our churches, not by our visible gifts of the Spirit, but by our baptism, by Christ's power. Throughout all of Christian history, we are united to every other believer through this baptism, ones you like and ones you don't like. It means that we are united to Peter and James and John. It means that we are united to Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. It means that we are united to Thomas Aquinas and to Joan of Arc, to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Julian of Norwich, to C.S. Lewis and Sir Jonah Truth, to my grandparents, to each one of you. All of us, believers from all time and all places, are united in the power of the baptism through Christ which we have received. So, who is baptized? All of us who are called of God by Christ's power. We are baptized into only one baptism. There's not more than that. And that baptism unifies and draws us closer as a community, as a whole, to the power of God. And this is good news, by the way, because the circumstances of your baptism matter, but they are not what matters the most because the central point of our unity is not the context or the circumstances of our baptism or anything that has happened since your baptism. What matters is Christ's power and the work of the Holy Spirit in your baptism, not the hands of whoever carried you into the water or lovingly poured it on your head. Each church community and each Christian tradition can and should teach Their best understanding of baptism, according to the text, according to what Jesus has done. And at this church, we have beliefs about the best form of baptism to receive, according to what the text tells us. But if we believe in baptism, we do not believe in the water and the method. We believe in the power of Christ in our baptism. That is the power that transforms us. And there are plenty of reasons that you might feel unstable in your baptism. So hear these truths. Everyone comes to baptism with mixed motives, but right motivation would not save you anyway. Everyone who comes to baptism will sin again, but sinlessness wouldn't save you. Everyone who comes to baptism does not know enough to make that choice, but knowing is not sufficient. Your personal circumstances, your social context, your church home, the way in which you received your baptism, your doctrine then, your doctrine now, none of it has power in that moment of baptism because none of it is greater than the power of Christ to save you. In those waters, in that flood, Christ receives you into one body. If you have been baptized, know this. Christ has received you into that one body, and no one, no human power, no written word can remove you from that baptism and from Christ's power in you because of it, no matter how you received it. It is yours, and it is ours to share, and we all live out of that truth of equality in the baptism that Christ has given us. If you have not received it, know this. Christ waits for you in those waters of baptism, ready to demonstrate the work of the Holy Spirit to transform you. Baptism is our act of obedience. For we who believe, we are baptized to demonstrate our submission to God, to mirror Jesus' baptism, for our cleansing, for our community, for a public declaration of what we believe. So who is baptism for, for all who believe and wish to receive the gift of God, called by Christ in Christ's power. Amen. You've been listening to me, Pastor Kana Moore at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members attenders and friends the financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know jesus to those local national and international missions and they help keep these broadcasts free if you would like to share a monetary gift with us please visit our website at hayeschristianchurch.org and click on the donate button or you may mail your gift to po box 1111 hayes kansas 67601. If you have any questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our website and click on the contact us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you as you seek to follow him.